0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. This is the third in a series of special podcasts on the idea of European sovereignty, where we're probing into the question of what it would take for Europeans to control their own destiny in a world of great power competition, where China and America are increasingly coming to the fore and where the infrastructure and connections of globalisation are increasingly being instrumentalized as part of a quest for glory and power which all of the great powers have entered. To help me make sense of the political aspects of European sovereignty, I have an all-star cast of people who are coming back to the podcast. Sitting with me here in London is Jeremy Shapiro, who is the Research Director of ECFR, and is also the uh, expert on all things Trumpian, even if I don't always agree with him (laughs) (laughs) on it. And uh, down the line, still in Paris, François Goudemont, who is the director of our China and Asia programme. And uh, he has also thought a lot about the, the role of the great powers, not least China and the US, in the global trading, security and other orders. So why don't we divide our conversation into three main parts. I think the first part is essentially about what it means to move away from a world of global governance towards one where we have uh, increasingly transactional relationships between the, the great powers. So if Europe is going to function in that world, what? leverage can we hope to have over the United States and over China and how do we need to change the way that we think about these relationships from the way that we did in the past? I think the second set of questions should be about some of the the institutions and what it means for how we behave in in different institutions, whether it's the WTO or NATO or the United Nations or other institutional formats. And then the third question, which is one which has been there through all of the discussions, is this question about what we can do to get Europeans to, to, to show solidarity towards each other, to have the kind of internal solidarity behind external action. Uh, particularly in the face of of china and america but some of the the lessons might also be true of other great powers like russia and turkey so why don't we start with the the first question this question of, of leverage it'd be very interesting if the two of you could say a bit about what kind of power and leverage you think we can have over the us and uh and china in this new world are there things that they want out of us which we're willing to,
1: uh, to trade? My feeling is, I'm not sure I, I will be able to separate the three parts of the discussions very well. But my my, my first reaction is that the US and the China are very different animals, and, and even under, under, under Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, and, and that their mode of influence, what they want from us, is very different. Uh, the U.S. Is, is is inside the fabric of Europe in every way since 1945. Uh, it has established the peace. Uh, it has probably fashioned the largest government in Europe, which is now the government of Germany, uh, which was really born of U.S. roots, reborn out of U.S. roots. Uh, its multinationals were inside the European economy for decades. Uh, the euro dollar was already being talked about in the 60s. Uh, and, 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 and on top of that, there is the, uh, uh, similarity in societies, the links and so forth. So that what is happening now looks like a painful divorce or something that could lead to a perf- painful divorce. Uh, and that's of course, very emotional. There are those of us who absolutely don't want the divorce. Others who say, well, you know, uh, let's, uh make the best out of it, or others who might even have a hidden wish that after all these years, America is proving to be what they've all said it was, which was self-interested empire, uh, basically uh, dealing out of its own immediate short-term interests. China is a distant suitor. We write that it's inside Europe because, of course, the influence has grown, because of course, the cash is there. Because, of course, it has attractive myths. But what China wants to do with Europe is, I would say, neutralize it, uh, contain it, uh, probably uh, replace it in many third parties, in many third areas. And that's an obvious concern. Uh, they would like to ring-fence Europe, its value systems, its institutions, so that we appear increasingly as an, you know, a regional oddity Uh, compared to the uh, Chinese authoritarian, uh, happy-go-lucky transactional model. So I would say contrary to appearances, the ideological war is between Europe and America now with the insurgency in America having arrived at the White House. uh, And uh, the real politic is between China and Europe. So that calls for very different reactions. So
0: Jeremy, do you buy that, that general analysis?
2: I think so but i'm not uh I'm not really too sure what where it gets us. I and mean, I think we should explore that a little bit, but I would say uh to try to get back to your original question of what of what leverage they have I think francois is hundred percent right that that the relationships that Europe has with China are very different in in both nature and quality from the ones that they have with china so i uh so I could focus a little bit on the on the u s and I think it's You know it's really intriguing to sort of uh, try to understand the role that Europe plays in U.S. foreign policy. It's really deeply taken for granted because of all of the background that that Francois talked about, all the historical background, and and what uh, what what you see, I think, in the in the reaction in the United States to to the way that Trump is treating Europe, is a sense um, from a large portion of. Uh, the US political spectrum uh, and certainly all of the foreign policy elite that Europe is the way in which the United States evaluates, understands its role in the world, its role as leader. Um, and this is not that much leverage vis-a-vis Trump because he's not he doesn't seem personally terribly interested in the role of leadership uh, for the United States, but actually leadership is a really Neuralgic question uh, in U.S. politics, uh, and I think that what what the Europeans can do to put political pressure uh, on the United States is to call into question uh, the the U.S.'s capacity to exercise leadership in the world, and particularly through Europe. Uh, you see this interestingly in the sort of weird bifurcated relationship that the United States has with. European, um, let's call them sovereignty projects, but including, uh, but particularly European defense projects. They, every time there isn't one, the United States says there needs to be more spending, there needs to be more unity, there needs to be more European um, uh, capacity to fend for itself in defense. And every time one is created, there are worries about what it means for US leadership. And it seems to me that this. Uh, this dualism in the U.S. approach reflects the fact that at the same time that they want the the Europeans to take more responsibility for themselves and to take more responsibility for projects in the world, we also want Europeans to uh, acknowledge and accept uh, U.S. leadership because it's a lot of the ways that we define ourselves within the world. That's why still in U.S. politics when you, when People are asking, how is the president seen in the world? They don't really ask questions about Moscow and Beijing. They really ask questions about London and Paris and Berlin.
1: I have a different perspective on this, perhaps because I've been uh, an Asia hand for 30 years. For 30 years, I've had the show of American policymakers or policy wonks completely ignoring Europe, for example, on Asia Pacific issues, or willfully propagating a model that essentially said, you know, we're not like Europe. We are more pragmatic. We do things better. Uh, the beef is with us. It's not with Europe. And there are various shades of that. The guy, the administration that escaped that was perhaps the George Bush 2 administration because it needed Europe over the Middle East and Afghanistan, uh, and it came to, 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 therefore to pretty near to courting Europe
2: in some ways. But no, Francois, I think maybe you're misunderstanding me slightly. Um, what, what I was trying to say is that for the, for the U.S., um, the European acquiescence to what it's doing in the world is important. It's not, it, it's not really um, about... So Europe is the ultimate legitimizing yeah. yeah, it's a legitimizing function. It's not about getting Europe on board with what the U.S. is doing in Asia. Uh, it's about making sure that, uh, that the Europeans don't uh, don't um, say this isn't this isn't effective leadership. Uh, so that's why the AIIB, the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, was such a challenge in Washington, because the idea that uh, Europeans weren't following the American lead in the Asia Pacific was the problem. I think it was an emotional moment. Exactly, exactly, an emotional response. But that the AIIB didn't really matter
1: that match. What was most striking was that, you know, the only two occasions where it has happened, the previous occasion was the quarrel about lifting the arms embargo towards China. And suddenly Europeans discovered they have some nuisance value and suddenly Americans would start talking with them. But I think with with Trump, we're further along, we're further down this path. I don't think Trump really wants to lead. Uh, I don't think Trump really wants uh to have allies in line uh he wants to achieve- this, this is one of the
0: but i think we're now sort of moving towards where i was hoping we're going to get to because i you two have been absolutely brilliant and fascinating as usual but we have some work to do in Let's this podcast <laughs> and i think what would be interesting is what's interesting i suppose about both trump and about xi jinping is that they're not interested in sort of classical leadership of the world in the way that that europeans so therefore, if we're thinking about leverage over them, we, it would be helpful to think about where can we have nuisance value? Are there things we can do which would be annoying, which we can then stop doing in order to change behaviour in the two places? Or are they things where they really need Europe, which goes beyond the legitimacy thing? Because I think the legitimacy thing works very well with everyone apart from Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. But given that he's president for the next... Uh, right,
2: although I do think that um, you saw in the reaction to the Helsinki summit uh, and the way that Trump has had to walk back yeah. that that legitimizing stuff. But in did,
0: a way, that's yeah. also the bit which Europeans are quite good at doing, moaning about American behavior is something they can probably do without our help.
2: Yeah, But if you can, if you can uh, create a sense of this neuralgia in US politics, it will affect Trump. But I take your point that uh, this, is not about, uh, this is not the way that Trump sees these things and he's not terribly interested in them. I I think that um, what you have to be able, you know, what what Trump is trying to do, and and this gets to the legitimation figure, is present himself as a winner in these negotiations. And you have to be able to demonstrate that he's not. So it doesn't make too much sense to do what Jean-Claude Juncker did two weeks ago in Washington, which is to get into the old mode of thinking that the agreement is that just making sure that transatlantic relations feel smooth, that there isn't disagreement, that there isn't fighting, is the way to uh, is the way to get the best outcomes? You actually have to make sure that you have that you have battles, and that you can uh, demonstrate to them that you're you're willing to go through the end of the battle and that the agreement. Uh, just having agreement and just having smoothness in transatlantic relations isn't a goal in and of itself, because yeah. I think Trump can really take advantage.
0: But what are the? If you had to kind of list four or five different things that you could do to show that Donald Trump was a loser, what yeah. would they
2: be? I mean, it would be uh, it would be along the lines of what I what has happened. I'm not sure it's a strategy already, but is is the the types of deals that the Europeans are striking with other powers. Uh, the, the EU-Japan deal that just happened three weeks ago <laughs> is a pretty good example. But also um, trying to uh, explicitly use, uh, on, in a tactical way, other relationships with, with China, with India, with other types of great powers in order to say to the United States, we have, we have uh, diplomatic opportunities And we are not going to be the slaves to a value-driven relationship if you're not going to be. I would think that there are uh, areas
1: where Europe can stand its ground, both towards China and the U.S. By the way, there was a Hollywood prize for the best producer of the year. I would give it to Donald Trump for engineering the most successful EU-China summit in three years. Because very frankly, at the very last moment, the mood shifted on the European path. The Europeans became, at least in language, much more open to Chinese openings, which they knew they had to be skeptical about, but managed to demonstrate to Americans, this is what you can prove. This is what you can create, a ground shift uh, towards Beijing. It's not real. I don't think the substance is there. But I think when Juncker arrived, shall we say, three weeks ago or two weeks ago uh, in Washington, he was a preceded by this new mood towards China or the appearance of a new mood. Uh, B uh, Malmstrom, uh, listing trade sanctions, uh, where it hurts. Uh, and he was able, uh, to deal. He can't deal completely. Let's be frank. The U S has a, over over barrel because it has Germany over a barrel on the auto export issue. Uh, this is f- for the. For, for, for Germany, this is the equivalent of sentimentality, uh, auto exports. Uh, you, you,
2: re, you will recall perhaps that when uh, Europe- The closest thing that Germany has to love.
1: Yes, when, when Europe was thinking about anti-dumping with solar panels, China threatened indirectly Germany over autos and that was it. Uh, uh, Germany did everything it could at the time uh, to stop the anti-dumping on, on solar panels because this is really crucial. So we operate within these constraints. But I think Juncker has shown a reasonably united front. Uh, The danger is that this is exactly like with China, a purely paper resolution already. This already uh, 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 just on the day after the the, the meeting with Trump, uh, the French minister of the economy, Le Maire, uh, came out with his own red lines uh, saying, you know, no question of opening up agriculture to biogenetics and uh, a number of other issues. So it's fragile, but at least, and, and, and that's where Europe currently is better in standing up to China than to the US, because this is not about ideology. This is not about popular opinion, fragmenting and domestic issues. It's about real politics in areas uh, where we are the biggest market in the world.
0: So are there particular things you think we could do? You know, you we've mentioned a few specific things now. There was the, the, the EU-China arms embargo. So lifting that, or not lifting that, but talking about lifting that 10, 15 years ago, got American attention. Um, this EU-China summit was another thing. But what are the other things you could do that would get American attention?
1: The difficulty is, do we want short-term attention between the mid- before the mid elections? And there's not much we can do, because the constituency... Uh, of Donald Trump is not, I mean, we have done, you know, minor things. The real big issue looming from is the uh, the digital issues, the tax issue on on the U.S. uh, giants. This could wear you out. This has been turned down, by the way, as I understand, uh, by Germany uh, in the previous year, whereas the EU was getting ready uh, to move on that. And if the auto war was ever going to start, uh, there would be ground for that. It's difficult because we can't use and we will not use uh, national security reasons uh, because we want to save the WTO and we think the use of national security reasons should be absolutely exceptional. But beyond the the issues of competition, there is the issue of taxation. Uh, And I think that is uh, very concretely uh, a way uh, in which we could defend you could even argue about takeover of critical startups I've been arguing for years for example that China of course needs to be stopped uh, in terms of acquisition of high-tech uh, Perhaps we should look into ways that our successful snap Startups are not
2: snapped up immediately. I think everything that Francois said makes a lot of sense um, I, I'd emphasize another area which I think has been a little bit underutilized, which is defense procurement uh, I think it was it was uh, very intriguing in the creation of the uh, of the um, Pesco that the thing that the Americans were most interested in is the is the pooling of funds for uh, defense procurement, which wasn't very, which wasn't really huge by the standards of such things, but um, really got U.S. attention because I think what uh, the realities of the defense industry the, these days mean that. Uh, it's only really viable, even in the United States, it's only really viable to have these massive uh, projects like the F-35 if you can get uh, external markets. And Europe is an absolutely critical external market for European, uh, for U.S. defense uh, sales. Um, And so I think that um, uh, the Europeans need to be conscious about their ability to leverage that and to think of that as both a trade and a national security issue.
0: But the danger is that Europeans will be, uh, the, the countries that feel very dependent, in yeah. uh, one of the earlier podcasts, we talked about the security relationship and the fact that there are ten member states that feel very insecure and depend on the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. They're all going to buy American just to. to do it. Uh, I,
2: but I mean, I think that that gets to the to the general issue, which was your third basket of issues, which is that none of this works without uh, effective unity, and it has to be across the um, it has to be across the issue areas. Really, yeah.
1: it's it's a an egg and chicken issue because you you. you You need the tools, you need the procurement, you need the collective industry on weapons, but you also need the policies. Uh, We don't really have a defense policy, we're not united, we look in different directions. Uh, And I think so long as that's the case, you will not find the uh, Central and Eastern European countries on board uh, for a common uh, procurement policy. They will want to maintain at all costs uh, the relationship with the U.S., just as the Japanese have kept on buying 90% of their defense procurement is done in the U.S. for very good reasons. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not saying that this should not change, uh, but I'm saying that without radical changes in our policy, in our collective policy outlook, we're not gonna be very credible.
2: No, I, I take. I think that's absolutely right. My point is that this is a potential source of leverage, but most of the sources of leverage uh, that we're talking about uh, can't be realized without uh, effective unity, either vis-a-vis China or vis-a-vis the United States. So we, we're
0: going to come to the unity soon. We are running out of um, rope because we've we've done quite a lot of other stuff other than my three baskets. But um, uh, maybe we should think a bit more about about some of the institutions because that might show where some of the policies could be effective. So you know, maybe. Um, you know the last couple of weeks we had two quite big um well I suppose we had th- three uh big summit events there was the g seven which was uh, a wonderful display of western disunity and was quite a wake up call to many uh European countries and not just the Europeans the Canadians and the Japanese looked um slightly shaken by it um And that's led to uh, to discussions about whether there could be different formats, the G6 or uh, or other kind of alliances. Um, Then there was the NATO um, summit and then the EU-China summit. Those are three things we just talked about. But I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from the two of you how you think Europeans should... uh, organize themselves in order to to maximize their leverage? It looks, from what we've said so far, that one of the important points of leverage over both of them is for us not to be alone, but to try and build up interesting relationships with others. Uh,
1: If if I answer in a a general way, I have a very standard answer for that. And that's the one that uh, Angela Merkel gave very recently, which is let us increase the uh, range of number of issues on which unanimity vote is not required among Europeans, on which qualifying majorities, because the stumbling block to any collective position is the unanimity rule. Facing China, it's very clear. Among 28 countries, China we always find one uh, or more, of course. Uh, and, 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 and that's very clear. I don't really believe that the G7 makes much of a difference. The only G7 I can really remember is the one that happened uh, in London right after the... Uh, uh, big financial crisis in
2: yes, the spring. That, of-
0: that was even a G20.
2: <laughs> so there's no memorable, memorable G7 since the Plaza Accords.
1: No. So, uh, and you can understand why Trump can afford to rock the boat and make reckless declarations, which he hopes will endear him to his, uh, his electionist constituency. But this, that, does it really matter? I don't think so. What matters is the steady erosion of international institutions by the Chinese, who avoid those big and empty speeches, but who are, you know, every day working uh, within these institutions? I'm not saying to conquer them and to rule them, but to nurture them, to neutralize them.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it's very difficult. What, it's it's strange that one of the one of the the it is specifically the European attachment to the concept of institutional institutions and the specific institutions themselves which creates weakness in the negotiation because they walk into a G7 or a WTO or wherever and uh, they're interested in preserving the institution uh, and, the, uh, in, and, the Trump, and Trump basically uh, doesn't care whether the institution continues or not and so creates a, uh, creates a negotiating advantage by taking the institution itself hostage. Uh, and it seems to me that that means two things for the Europeans. First of all, it means that they have to they have to have a really good sense of what these institutions are for and get get away from the idea that preserving the institution is a value in and of itself uh, so that they so that they don't lose that negotiating leverage. Secondly, I think it means they need to think about other other formats for uh, for working with like minded states and uh, the German foreign minister gave a speech in, uh, in Japan where he said, you know, Germany and Japan can be the core of an alliance of multilateralists, um, which is, if you think about it, an ad hoc grouping in favor of multilateralism. Um, and I think what he's, what he's really getting at there, to my mind, is that uh, we're entering into a world where the very large powers, the very strong powers, are increasingly unwilling to be bound by rules. And that means that the smaller powers, especially these medium-sized powers, which can still have an influence if they work together, need to, have a, need to be able to uh, hold the feet of, to, of the larger powers to the fire about these rules. And they need to have a, a sense that there is solidarity in being a medium power. Uh, and I think they also need to be able to create a sense that they're working on behalf of smaller powers.
1: I'm gonna try and take the subject just a bit further. If you're Japan and you have uh, taken war out of your constitution, you sure need international rules. Uh, if you're Germany after the war, you need to rebuild rules around you and if possible favorable to you, uh, but you can't do it otherwise. This is the birth defect of the EU. It's still an alliance of nation states Uh, trust is not automatic. You can see that on every mundane policy issues, there are in fact very strong interest debates. So rules are not only essential for the big, you know, that wild world out there, it's even necessary within the EU. I would love a a better structured EU, more solid EU that could say, you know, we have a rules-based system inside the EU and we're ready to be bad guys outside. Uh, But that's impossible for the time being, because that would destroy the very fabric of the EU. If one day, uh, you know, it used to be that Texas uh, wanted to declare secession, now there's talk about California, I'm joking, of course, but this is in the air. Suppose this became serious one day, then you would find suddenly a huge US attachment to rules, uh, including inside itself. So we are in a very different, we live in very different worlds. So I think we've established some
0: principles um are there kind of specific i mean i think this is one of the questions the the high core mass question is a really uh challenging one because it sounds great this middle ranking alliance for multilateralism until you look at the fact that the countries that are against multilateralism are are not middle ranking they're heavyweights so the united states of america it's china it's russia it's india Um, How can these middle-ranking countries actually support multilateralism? Uh,
2: Well, I think that they, uh, obviously, they they need to work together. I think that that's the point of uh, of the...
0: You're thinking about kind of multilateral archipelago, which just involves Japan and the EU and and maybe... Canada
2: Canada, and Brazil and South Africa and countries like that. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think there's a real capacity to do that because if they, uh, if they are able, this is the, this is the sort of rule-setting agenda that, we all, that we've always talked about in the transatlantic alliance, generally speaking. And I think it also, in particular, I, I'm not sure about China, but I think in the U.S. case, it will have a real impact on the psychology of leadership. And I think you will see the United States, which is having a debate with itself about the value of rules, um, that you will see there being a, a sort of sense why are these countries uh, that have traditionally been uh, followers of American-originated of American rules going off on their own and creating rules which, uh, if they're not exactly aimed at us, uh, do exclude us. And I think you'll see that that will have an effect on the politics within the United States.
0: What makes us think that this is going to be any less ineffectual than the alliance of democracies and you know other kinds of so-called like-minded groupings?
2: Uh, it does seem to me that uh, trade and investment rules are probably the best place to start. And maybe high-tech digital standards, cyber
1: uh, areas where we've taken for granted the United States Uh, But where this goes with the the practical domination of U.S. firms and you will see a very, I mean, right now, Trump is playing, you know, on soy uh, farmers, on on steel and auto workers. Uh, He's not playing on Silicon Valley. He's not playing on the service industry and on the profits from the service because these guys don't get him elected anyway. Uh, But if that happens, Japan used to be very close to any outside norms, for example. Suppose, and, and this is implied in the new free trade agreement, suppose there is more work and suddenly the U.S. finds it's not the biggest market by far, uh, and there are alliances developing, it will begin to find the advantage, an advantage to rules. I put China separately because I think China is really right now, I mean, having its heyday with the division among its main partners. And, and, and it's probably wonderful uh, for Xi Jinping to be a staunch nationalist uh, Determine industry uh, builder uh, at this time when you know whatever we bicker about China, uh, we don't really have a hold because we're t- too busy with our own quarrels.
0: So why don't we end with our own quarrels? Because um, that's the, the key question behind all this: is if we are going to work together on the world stage, how can we stop Europeans from splintering? There are is a kind of big structural gap uh, between East and West when it comes to how to relate to the US because the countries that feel threatened by Russia are, are terrified of a world without America and therefore the more unreliable the US becomes, the closer they, uh, they hug America. Um, and then on China, that's uh, something else which we've discussed on this post- podcast, Francois, but they've become much better at dividing and ruling Europeans. And you mentioned some of the ways uh, that they have been picking countries off with, in- with investment, and, uh, but also they've managed to get countries to break with EU unity on foreign policy issues because of some of the diplomatic and commercial pressure they put on them. How do you think we get around that? The, the brutal way is what Francois suggested earlier, which is say, well, introduce qualified majority voting um, and allow countries to be outvoted. That doesn't usually end very well. When, when, when Merkel tried that with the refugee quotas, they got the policies through, but no one was willing to implement it.
1: Uh, I think we have to stop fake debates, by the way. Uh, we denigrate the Trump uh, uh, demagogy and rhetorics on immigration and uh, the wall and so on but we have built our own walls. Uh, Europe is just as worried about immigration just as divided as American society is. Uh, so we, have, we, 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 we shouldn't see it as a huge difference. I think we have idealized European construction and we're forced to come back to reality which is its solid interests. Uh, it's gotta be built with compromises. And yes, it's not completely open to the outside world. This is an ambiguous plea that I'm making, but I, I would say the more we uh, demand from Europe to reach higher and higher, the more we risk uh, that it fails, or even that it's ridicule because of the distance between the ideal and, and, and reality. That's one thing. Uh, the second thing uh, I, I, I think, uh is to be able to consider practical compromises uh you know france used to ignore completely uh the central and eastern european state it was germany who established client relationships let's be very brutal about that uh, and france had an idea about the mediterranean states uh, which was not far from what you expressed uh mark about the us you know they should acquiesce. Like, uh, we're natural leaders it's the uh, uh, Latin Union, and we're, we're we're and we're the leaders. We have to stop all, all that. Uh, the EU will be a constant pro- process of negotiating, and uh, and in addition today a very big process of convincing popular opinion of political leaders going across borders. Uh, it's happening. You know Macron's speeches are very good, but read Orban's uh, speech on the conservative Europe he would like to lead. It's not. A- bad speech. It's a real ideological and political competition. And we have to acknowledge that. I think that without some political progress in building an arena of debate at the European level, not pretending that the Europe is by necessity progressive, by definition progressive, admitting that there is a progressive versus conservative debate, uh, and not only led by Germany,
2: uh, we would begin to create more unity. So
0: disunity is the first step towards uh, reconciliation.
2: Yeah. Uh, look, I mean that makes some sense to me, but I have to say I'm quite pessimistic about about this. Uh, I think it's uh, when I when I look out there, I, I see these debates happening, but uh, but actually I see the debates really deepening the divides, and I, I think I've reached the conclusion that um, that. Greater unity isn't going to come through greater agreement, it's going to come through what the political scientists would call a sort of hegemonic stabilization. It's going to come through um, the larger powers within Europe, realizing that the only way to create unity is to uh, be willing to, uh, to buy off the smaller powers on, sm- on, on other issues. Um, and what, we, what we've seen in the last few years in Europe is we've seen particularly the Germans um, making the case that they can behave like any other power in Europe and still have uh, and still preserve unity so that they can, they can press their uh, national preferences on austerity issues and monetary policy issues. They can press their national preferences on migration issues. Uh, just like any other country does. And actually I think they need to take more of the type of position that the United States took in in dealing with Europe post-war, right after the Second World War, which is to think about, uh, uh, for the short term, submerging some national interests in the project of creating adherence and unity to uh, larger, longer-term issues. And I have to admit, I don't really see any impetus uh, to do that. I mean, you can, you can talk to some German officials who would, who would see the need for this, but it doesn't seem to adhere at all in their politics right now. It's a little bit more present in French politics, but they need to get uh, the Germans on board, and they haven't had much success with that.
0: Well, you're describing the way Germany saw itself until it started to become a normal country.
1: Germany looks a bit like Japan did. 20 years ago, in the sense that it still has a very large cushion. Life in the short term is still very easy, so it's much more difficult to plead for very large changes. In France, frankly, with the downward slide of the past 20 years, we didn't really have a choice, and that what explains Macron uh, coming to power and do, and 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 saying what he's saying now. Uh, but I agree 100% with Jeremy, and we, I would just make the remark that what he describes is exactly the US Congress process. Some call it pork barrel politics. Uh, and sometimes it's quite hilarious to see how majorities are built. Uh, but that's what we need to do. And that's why we also need to very strongly reform how the EU Parliament is constituted uh, to, so that instead of having, you know, ideological majorities or just leftover people mostly there, uh, we have, have real representatives of interests.
0: Yeah. I mean. I- I wonder whether, I mean, that was basically the role of the EU budget over the last few years. Most of the pressure now is on it shrinking. And with Brexit, I think the pork barrel is going to shrink Yeah, but even pork more. barrel
2: in this sense is not just about money. It is also about, uh, it is also about policy. Uh, and policy uh, within the EU, policy is a lot, is, is become, I think, a lot more important than money. There was a limited amount of leverage for unity that you were gonna get from structural funds always. It's just not that big a deal. But if we're talking about the single biggest domestic political issues throughout Europe, those are austerity and immigration. And what the Germans, it seems to me, if you were really gonna construct a pork barrel based politics for unity within uh, Europe right now, you would have the Germans being willing to make policy concessions and devote financial resources toward helping other countries on those two issues. And you could add Russia as a, as a third issue. You them. might be able to have Russia as a third issue. Absolutely. So it's
0: a grand bargain that's needed between different countries
1: and Britain. That's the Macron grand bargain, which, by the way, is sometimes undercut by France's own uh, union stance, so to speak, for its own interests. Uh, frankly, Jeremy, I, I, I am a little less pessimistic than you. But that's only because I think that the external threats will mount and that uh, even the larger states or the larger state will have no way. I keep emphasizing to German friends the Japan example, how Japan went down from the uh, apex of the 80s uh, simply because it was unable to see beyond its own uh, national interests in many ways.
0: And if the key is uh, rapid decline of a country, then Britain might become a, a very useful. <laughs> Part of the, uh... <laughs> okay, so we covered a lot of ground there. I think we've ended with the need for a grand bargain. I'm not sure we worked out how to get it. Um, that's that's where politics comes in, I suppose. Um, but it, we can see, I think, through this discussion and through all the three podcasts, the strange intertwining of global, the global geopolitical competition, the... Um, structure of interdependence between countries and then the kind of uh, need for for national politics to to work in a way that pushes Europe together if it's going to be sovereign in the world rather than uh, encouraging countries to defect and um, uh, undermine any hope of having a, a voice on the world stage. If you've enjoyed this podcast series, please do write to me at at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu with your comments. And we're still also crowdsourcing bookshelf recommendations. Um, You'll notice that we didn't have any on this uh, podcast. In order to create uh, a market for for listener-driven bookshelf recommendations which we can then put out after the summer is over oh. but if you've enjoyed uh, listening to it then please do write about it on your social media page or ours give us a rating or review on itunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on and for now from francois goudemont jeremy shapiro myself mark leonard it's goodbye the editor of ucfr's podcast is and our researcher is jonathan arkenbroche